0: So, Miles, Jean Grey, Captain Burton, and Peter Parker go to Empire State University. Is this a a joke, Max? Not exactly. It was just the college you went to at Marvel at the time.
1: Uh, Oh, right, yeah. Well, it it seemed like a good place to be if you were also a superhero. Lots of villains on staff, which, you know, was convenient. The Humbug was a professor there, Miles Warren, the Jackal. That's the guy responsible for Spider-Man's clone
0: saga. And I think the Lizard taught there, too. Ooh, and Dr. Hopper. Wait, who? The Locust. He was going to take over the world with an army of giant grasshoppers, you know, until... The X-Men beat him up? Professor X dressed like a hermit and talked him out of being evil. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Max Carlton, filling in for Jay Edidin. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode
1: 370 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So before we dive into the 60s, let's talk about 2022. As you've likely heard, the United States is being hit with an unprecedented wave of anti-LGBTQI legislation, including Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. This bill prohibits a great deal of education, support, and resources for queer and trans kids with potentially deadly consequences. And the Explain the X Men community is fighting back. So, throughout April, we're matching donations to Equality Florida up to $10,000 and maybe more by the time this episode goes live, and offering rad rewards to folks who donate. So, check out slash equality for more information and please help if you can. Meanwhile, Max, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I know you've been on the show in bits and pieces a few times, but I think the last time you fully co-hosted was back in episode 115 when you talked to Jay about the X-Men anime while I was away.
0: Yeah, nothing happened for about nine yeah nine episodes, and then Professor X's son turned into a tree. I mean, that's
1: tale as old as time. That's one of Jack London's, like, standard plots, right? Man versus himself, Professor X's son turns into a tree...
0: Yeah, I'm, heck, Jean Grey saved the universe once by thinking about a tree really hard. doesn't make it into a lot of Phoenix adaptations. (laughs) That's a good point. Botany is
1: so much more important to the X-Men chronology than we think it is. Especially now. Very true. So, Max, you've been a friend friend of JNI and a friend of the podcast for a long time, but I think the world at large likely knows you through your presence on the internet, specifically your webcomic Waiting for the Trade. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Uh, Sure, yeah. I do a webcomic, Waiting for the Trade, which is about a lot of kind of persnickety continuity stuff. They're comics about comics, jokes about little things. It's a very specific kind of humor, not for everyone, but people seem to enjoy it. I
1: think it's pretty great. And I I do appreciate that there are many strips that I would love to show to friends, but they haven't read, you know, decades of X-Men, and so they won't fully, fully get it. still funny, just not as funny. Thank you.
0: I, I, I appreciate that.
1: And I know a lot of those comics are about the original five X-Men, about the Silver Age. It seems like you
0: have a lot of Silver Age feels. Ooh, see, that's a little complicated. I do like the Silver Age in general. Silver Age X-Men is an odd area because a lot of the, like, really iconic stuff happens pretty early on. Your Magnetos, your Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, your Juggernauts. And then there's a lot of faffing about for a while. Uh, hey, you remember when the X-Men fought the Warlock?
1: Oh, the Warlock. Most iconic X-Men villain of all time.
0: But there's a lot of fun stuff there. It, it's it's odd to call it boring because the Silver Age is very bizarre, even the more grounded Marvel Silver Age. But there, there's a reason you're not exactly seeing El Tigre running around anymore. <laughs> Right? No, it's
1: very true. I mean, and of course, we all have to remember that the Silver Age X-Men were not very successful as comics characters went. Like, they were no Avengers, they were no Hulk, they were definitely no Fantastic Four. This was a book that not even a decade into its Silver Age run went into reprints.
0: Hmm. A lot of the stuff that I feel works with the Silver Age is sort of addressed in stories that take place in the silver age, but just sort of borrow very loosely from it. Uh, Let's see your children of the Adams is definitely your X-Men first class, the comics, not so much the movies. There's a lot of good material there, but as it was, it was basically just a lot of the five X-Men fight X this week. And X is grotesque or the unhuman. Yup. It was sort of generically
1: Silver Age, which is unfortunate, um, especially given that X-Men would become one of the better-defined franchises in Marvel. And so, we were thinking, this episode, we were going to talk about not those iconic early Magneto Juggernaut, etc. stories, but some of the highlights from the sort of strange forgotten middle to late era of the Silver Age, including one of my, spoiler, favorite single comics of all time. So, Max, you and I each picked uh, some favorites. We we narrowed it down to three issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you say? Do we go chronologically? Do we go in a different
0: order? Let's go chronologically.
1: All right, awesome. Well, uh, let's start out, then, with X-Men number 46. Remember, it was only later titled Uncanny X-Men, so between this and the uh, Jim Lee adjectiveless X-Men, there are two X-Men 46s. It's very confusing. Anyway, point being, this is the first X-Men 46, The End of the X-Men, published in July 1968. This issue is written by Gary Friedrich, penciled by Don Heck and Werner Roth, Inked by John Tartaglioni and lettered by Artie Simic. Previously
0: on The X Men.
1: So, Professor X recently died in The Silver Age X Men. He was mm-hmm. killed by the forgettable villain Grotesque.
0: Actually killed by a disease. Actually, actually not killed at all because it was the Changeling.
1: Yep. The X Men don't know that, or at least most of the X Men don't know that.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's weird that he dies. ...during this battle with Grotesque, and then they immediately walk it back with, oh, actually he was dying of a long illness, and he just happened to die of that illness while fighting Grotesque?
1: Yeah, that's a strange decision. Like, I don't know if they wanted to make Grotesque not quite as evil, or or what?
0: Well, they needed to explain why the professor at time just set all of his affairs in order and give Jean Grey some of his telepathy, because that was the thing at the time... Jean didn't have telepathic powers of her own. She did do some telepathy-esque stuff using machines the professor had built, but Jean Grey being a natural telepath was a retcon later. As of the intro of her telepathic abilities, it was literally the professor giving her some of his telepathy, which is, I guess, something you can just do.
1: I feel like if the Marvel Universe had gone with that, we'd have a very different Marvel Universe indeed just trading powers back and forth, doing, like, some sort of mix and match, people threatening superheroes into giving them their powers so they could be super for a day. Like, there were
0: so many directions we could have taken this. Yeah, and we see a little bit of that in Power Pack where they can swap powers, which, uh, it's an interesting concept. I get why they... A lot of the stuff Claremont ended up doing is just kind of smoothing over weird Silver Age bumps. Everyone used machines to do everything. You know, sometimes it's just easier for someone to just be a telepath.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I always go back to Magneto's continually used telepathic abilities. Like, he was astral-forming all the hell over the place in the Silver Age before that was just retconned back into oblivion.
0: Yeah, everyone was kind of at least a little bit psychic back then.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's where our status quo is right now. Xavier's gone, Gene has some of his telepathy, and the X-Men are on their own. And they haven't had much time to mourn, because they immediately got pulled into an Avengers crossover to fight Magneto. But as of X-Men number 46, we're a little bit past that, so it's time to be sad. It's time to be sad stylishly, though. Can we talk about some of the outfits that these kids are wearing as they mourn at Xavier's grave?
0: Yeah, I don't really think of uh, this time period as being really big for fashion plate stuff, but Jean brought it to this post-funeral funeral. She did, yeah.
1: Like, I don't even know how you would describe this. It's this sort of yellow plaid top with like a fancy strappy
0: neck piece. And of course, there's Scott's very spiffy fuchsia overcoat. Moving away from his green clothing, Scott was very into the green clothing in the Silver Age.
1: He was. Like, I'm kind of wondering if that has something to do with the color filtration through the ruby quartz, if he just doesn't fully get color, or if certain colors just look very different to him than other people, because that may be the only justification for that fuchsia, unless you're Magneto.
0: Maybe Jean was just dressing him. We know she likes green.
1: True, true. If she starts dressing him in red, then I'd have some relationship worries for them. Mm. So, I feel like this scene is actually genuinely sad like everyone thinks of silver age comics as being very cheesy but you could get some real emotion into them and for me this scene hit hard
0: oh yeah this is this has weight professor x's death at this point is legitimately a really big deal like they have no more big support system outside of him being the x-men's go-to big gun in the early days like they don't know if they still have a place to live access to all of his machines there's there's a lot of stuff and of course there's an emotional component to it it's sad when someone you know dies
1: right but i think you're totally right it is all of that like we've seen xavier and the x-mansion are basically most of the family and homes that these kids have like he's been there from the start every single step of the way like not just in the x-men comics but as we've gotten more and more flashbacks in the issues around this era, like. He was there from the start of their mutant powers manifesting in many cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, because we've been getting everyone's intro story as kind of backgrounds, and he's stopped most of them from getting killed by various mobs of people. So many angry mobs in the Silver Age, and the Bronze Age for that matter. Big time for mobs. I guess mobs never really go out of fashion. Especially if they would dress like uh, Gene in this post-funeral funeral. funeral. (laughs) So... We've got a little internal thing from Gene, who mourns the Professor. Uh, He was so good and young, which I don't really think of Professor X in this time as being young, but I guess he is supposed to be not the wizened old guy we think of when we think of Professor X.
1: Yeah, I remember reading at some point that he was supposed to be in his late 20s at this point, which kind of blows my mind. Mm. I guess if the kids are teenagers, like, okay, but I don't know, he just comes off as an old man. Maybe it's the pipe, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, pipe really has serious dad feel back then. Reed Mm -hmm. Richards had one too, which, I mean, it was just the thing that was done at the time. It was the style of the time. But there's no time to mourn because Agent Fred Duncan is here. Y'all remember Agent Fred Duncan? I feel like everyone remembers Agent
1: Fred Duncan, but in case they don't, or in case they're confused by the fact that he's randomly called Amos Duncan here for some reason, Mr. Duncan was the X-Men's FBI liaison. He was a bud of Professor X's, he would help them out, they would share tips. Uh, He was a very dad-like figure, I think he also has a pipe, as one must— And uh, he's got some extremely important news for them.
0: But that can wait for a little bit because it's time for the reading of Professor X's will. And as is his wont, every time he dies, he has hired someone from a different superhero book to tell everyone what they get.
1: In this case, it's uh, Foggy Nelson on loan from Daredevil, but you're totally right because didn't that happen around the Bendis
0: era, like around the Battle of the Atom era as well? Uh, Yeah, She-Hulk read out his... Uh, Will after he got killed by Cyclops, except not really.
1: That was where we found out that he had a kid with Mystique, but then that sort of got swept under the continuity rug.
0: Yeah, I think he was still being held by S.H.I.E.L.D. at some point, but maybe not. Who knows? Ah, continuity. I wonder, uh, he he also got killed by Bishop at some point a little earlier than that, but not really. Uh, God, that guy just keeping the will industry in business. I know, right? And he almost got killed
1: at the beginning of Executioner's Song when he was shot in the head by Cable, which is to say strife. Hmm. Now I'm just wondering whether Professor Xavier seems to die or the X-Mansion seems to get destroyed more.
0: So they get through the will reading. Uh, they're all, they all have equal share in the mansion, which is a nice bit of continuity. I'm not sure comes up all that often. Scott is officially in charge of things, but they each have an equal stake in the school and all of his science equipment, and Gene notes that Professor X doesn't really have family, hinting at the thing that is about to happen for the rest of the episode. Right. And
1: also kind of gliding past some of his existing connections, like, from what we know from retcons, he and Moira already would have been working together for quite a while at this point, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's not even getting (laughs) into—I mean, I know, he didn't know about Legion, but— you think he would have given Gal- Gabrielle Holler probably deserved something given their connection. But isolated to this story,
1: like once again, we are just really honing in on the X Men and these five teenagers were kind of Professor X's life, and he was genuinely dedicated. Like, as much as Jay and I in the show talk about Professor Xavier being a jerk and a terrible father figure. In the Silver Age, like, yes, he was very stern, almost comically so sometimes, and yes, he had a habit of wiping people's minds at the slightest provocation, but he was actually a pretty good mentor and father figure to the original five X-Men.
0: It doesn't come up in this issue, but it gets mentioned earlier that the professor was being a lot harsher on them in the issues leading up to his death, to prepare. and they're like, oh, it was to prepare us, not just because he's a giant jerk. Although, given the fact that this is a death fake-out from him... But still.
1: But still. And we should point out that canonically, Jean Grey knows that Professor X is alive. The other four X-Men do not. In X-Men Grand Design, many, many years later, as this era is retold, it'll be alternate universe retcon that all of the X-Men knew, but they were pretending not to to keep the world in the dark. I kind of like that better, but eh, this was the decision that was made at the time.
0: Jean's still mourning him, though. I mean, her mind's not super on events, as we'll see later in the issue. So, maybe she forgot he's not actually dead.
1: Or, or maybe she was actually mourning the Changeling. She doesn't specify, and while there is a picture of Professor X in her thought bubble, I mean, the Changeling looks like Professor X at the time.
0: Meanwhile, in another dimension, the Juggernaut has been hanging out in the crimson cosmos for a while. This was back when, if you wanted to, you know, defeat the Juggernaut, you just kind of threw him into Sidorak's dimension. Which, you know, he'll be someone else's problem. It's fine.
1: He's been there for nine issues, which I feel like is kind of a while, even with the weird flow of
0: time. He's got to be so bored right now. Luckily, he doesn't have long to be bored outside of the, I guess long period of time he was trapped there because he gets zazacked back into Xavier's lab.
1: So apparently Professor X built a machine to auto-rescue Juggernaut from the Crimson Cosmos after a certain period of time had passed, which seems like an odd plan. I mean, I don't know, we shouldn't talk shit about Xavier's plans, he's not here to defend himself.
0: I'm sure he'll be less murdery after being trapped in an alternate dimension for an unspecified period of time.
1: One of the repeated tropes I appreciate is everybody continuing to think that the Juggernaut will change, and then he just doesn't. Like, he eventually kind of does around Chuck Austin's run, but really, every time he's offered a hand up, he just responds with two middle fingers, and I kind of love him for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Juggernaut is very, very committed to being a jerk, which— Mm-hmm. So he's here to kill Professor X. Bad timing, buddy. Yeah, the X-Men tell him, Cyclops is like, didn't you hear? Professor X is dead. And it's like, how would he have heard, Scott? Come on! They
1: don't get the daily paper in the Crimson Cosmos, and if they did, it would just be red ink on a red page. It would be hard to read.
0: So, he decides that, you know, obviously they're lying to him. There's no way his stepbrother's dead. So, he'll just kill them, and then he'll knock down the house, and he'll probably eventually find Xavier and kill him, too. Sound logic, really.
1: And... In fact, he does pretty well. I mean, this is the Juggernaut. He's one of the X-Men's most intimidating villains at this point, as much as he gets kind of turned into a chump later. Like, at this point, he's one of the big bads, especially with this new ability he suddenly has to fire
0: energy globules at them. It's a fun word that they use to describe his energy globule power. He just shoots these weird, thick wads of energy goo at the X-Men that destroy trees and knock down walls. It seems like a little bit of an extra step for something he could just do with his bare hands, but, you know, you gotta flex, right? You gotta flex. It kind of reminded me of that old drink that was popular for about four seconds
1: in the 90s. I think it was called Orbits, but, like, Orbitz with a Z. Uh, Do you remember that stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. Did it have, like, a weird-shaped bottle, or am I thinking of, uh, I think I'm thinking of balls with a Z. I feel like Orbis might have also had
1: a weird-shaped uh, bottle, but yeah, it had these little chewy, almost boba things and this strange syrupy soda. And so now I'm just imagining that everything is going to get very sticky and start to smell funny after a while after this fight.
0: Eh, they're all leaving anyway.
1: Someone else is now. Exactly. I do appreciate, though, that a later Doctor Strange issue will specifically go out of its way to point out that this weird energy globule thing was just a temporary power the Juggernaut got due to his exposure to the Crimson Cosmos, and he doesn't have it anymore. Like, that's one of the things I enjoy, especially about um, Bronze Age comics, is them doing their best to make the Silver Age make more sense, when in reality, from what I can tell, the Silver Age was just a bunch of writers and artists shrugging and saying, why not, a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the times, as we will, again, see in this issue, stories just kind of end when you run out of pages. (laughs) Yup. And you had fewer pages at this
1: point, too, because so many of the X-Men issues had, like, a great big backup story about one of the original
0: five's origins at the end. So, the Juggernaut is pretty handily wrecking the X-Men. Gene is... Seriously off her game for the first part of the fight? She's just standing looking off in a random direction as stuff is flying at her head? It's the wrong way around, Gene. You're supposed to look in a random direction and have stuff fly away from your head.
1: Exactly. This is telekinesis 101, but I love it. Like, Cyclops is doing his best to, you know, tackle her out of the way or zap stuff coming at her, and she's just like, what? Or, whoa. I mean, she redeems herself, don't get me wrong, because remember, Professor X gave her some telepathy, which is to say— technically unlock the telepathy that he had suppressed early on because he was worried she'd be too powerful and wouldn't be able to control it but uh she actually does kind of save the day here
0: yeah she does what no other telepath ever does she telepathically goes in through the eye holes of the helmet and she hits the juggernaut with mighty bolts of telepathy which he assumes is professor x i guess maybe telepathy has a certain feel and at this point since she's using his But he's like, Charles has to be alive. I can feel his telepathy tearing my brain to shreds. Charles,
1: get your very specifically tasting telepathy out of my head. My
0: dear stepbrother.
1: Every voice actor that has ever voice acted the Juggernaut, I I, I love their work. I just want to invite them all to a party and just have them
0: talk to each other. But... Juggernaut convinces Gene to stop telepathizing at him by threatening to crush Angel's skull with his bare hands. This is
1: another trope. Like, I noticed this came up multiple times in the issues we're going to be covering today, which is that the villain tends to get the upper hand when Angel finally misses one of his
0: dodges. I just... Gene was doing really well on her own, Warren. She didn't need you to come over and start punching the Juggernaut. Stop swooping, Warren! It's not helping! So... Fortunately, Warren is saved by the machine randomly zooping Juggernaut back. See, he smashed it as soon as he came out of the dimension so it couldn't zoop him back. But it turns out you need to do other stuff. After after coming out of the dimension, there's like a salve or something you need to apply to stop yourself from getting voiped back into the Crimson Cosmos.
1: I kind of like that it this issue takes Professor Xavier's questionable plan and makes it make a little more sense at this point because I guess the hope was that he would retrieve the Juggernaut, presumably after his machine had enough processing time to get into the Crimson Cosmos. But the fail-safe was, if he wasn't able to treat the Juggernaut and make him you know less evil, then the process would be undone. So, way to go, Chuck. Your logic was somewhat confusing, but you you made it work in the end.
0: So... That completely—it turns out that was kind of completely irrelevant because Agent Duncan comes in and was like, well, that was weird. Anyway, you all have to leave now. I know you just inherited this school, but it's too dangerous for you without the professor. So you need to go out where you will be, you know, single targets, less able to defend yourself.
1: Yup. And uh, also he says that they can be more effective if they're spread out throughout the country so they can get to different missions more quickly. But— If I had to guess, I mean, I know X-Men was a book that was often sort of floundering. As we mentioned, it did go into reruns not too far after this. And so I wonder if this was just an attempt to boost sales, to focus on individual characters more uh, in different environments. That's the only thing I can really think of for why this would be done so quickly after such a a paradigm shift as the professor dying.
0: Yeah, and we we got a few solo issues that were like Marvel Girl and Cyclops, not, you know, X-Men – presents or whatever it felt like these characters were sort of seeing if they could hold their own books which spoiler alert no or at least not yet anyway right yeah we, we don't have our wolverine yet
1: so yeah everybody sadly departs and scott and gene get a little uh, angsty in their thought bubbles as is their want as scott thinks to himself
0: am i actually going to stand here and let the only girl i'll ever love walk out of my life He...
1: he isn't going to come after me. Maybe he doesn't care after all.
0: You two are going to be fighting giant robots in your next issue. It's fine. (laughs) You'll be fine. I mean, it's not. Things are going to get horrible for you pretty quickly, but... The point is, they'll get horrible
1: for you while you're together. So, yeah, that is uh, this enormous paradigm shift for the Silver Age X-Men after an enormous paradigm shift when Xavier died that lasts very, very briefly, but... I really like this one. It's goofy, but it's so much fun and it's so just I it's so representative of this particular micro era of the Silver Age.
0: It really is. And it's it's not boring, which is a really good thing for this era of the X-Men. It's a fun little story. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but you get cool moments for a lot of the characters. Jean is kind of weirdly it's it's hard to put your finger on it exactly. Jean is a very powerful character in this era of the Silver Age. She does a lot of the team's heavy lifting after the Professor dies. And she gets some pretty impressive uh, wins in this era. People tend to remember the stuff like her telekinetically using her powers to stop herself from falling into a hole by moving a log over the hole because she's taken too much of a step to stop walking at this point. But she's pretty good with her telepathy right off the bat. I mean, most people don't go in through the Juggernaut's eye holes.
1: It's true. Xavier never figured that one out. And I think you're totally right. Like, I think another reason that I was excited to talk about this this issue when you brought it up is that this does feel like a turning point to the X-Men getting to be their own characters getting to have a little bit more agency in a way they haven't had a chance to before and I think that's something that's going to define all of them a little bit better than they had been and kind of lead toward the more modern age versions of the original five yeah well let's move on to an issue that introduces a very important character that I'm excited to talk about X-Men number 52 Twilight of the Mutants from January 1969 written by Arnold Drake penciled by Don Heck and Werner Roth inked by John Tersaglione, and lettered by Sam
0: Rosen Previously on the X-Men, the X-Men's new mutant friend Lorna Dane was told by Magneto's current team that she was his daughter, because, come on, magnetism, right? So she reluctantly joined
1: his group to do evil things, because, you know, if somebody's your dad, you gotta do what they say.
0: Filial duty, yeah. I like that she just, she didn't have an option. This guy comes in, helmet, cape, he's like, I'm your dad, so you have to help me kill people. And she just didn't have the option to be like no <laughs> nope
1: also she felt kind of bad because he was still injured after his last defeat by the x-men in the avengers so she gets a rad costume that we'll talk about in a sec not a codename interestingly she's not polaris she's not even Magnatrix, the name she briefly chose before that
0: oh lorna yup oh lorna uh. <laughs> yep. oh,
1: Anyway, there's no time to think about names uh, other than this guy's name, because a bondage viking named Eric the Red just broke into evil headquarters.
0: Yeah, he wants to be the latest convert to Team Evil. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, okay, I know I just said we weren't going to talk about costumes yet, but we've got to talk about Eric the Red's costume. I know we have on the show before, but it's been a while. Max, how would you describe this sartorial masterpiece? It's a lot of look. Basically, yes. A lot of look, a lot of exposed skin, and a lot of red leather. Like, it's this sort of bondage harness with tiny little panties and big armored boots and this horned helmet and a big X over the exposed part of his chest that is also leather. I mean, damn, Eric.
0: Well, it's the sort of outfit one might wear if they, say, got their powers from the sun— Sometimes when they don't get them from the, you know, punch dimension. Yup. That is true. And that actually makes a lot of sense, given who will
1: find Eric the Red out to be. I've never thought of that. But right now, he is just punching bad guys. So Mesmero, the uh, hypnotic, green-skinned evil mutant, is Magneto's main lieutenant at this point. He commands a lot of dudes in orange outfits, and they are all piling onto Eric the Red.
0: Perhaps boastful one you have never read that the most practical recipe for roast chicken which begins first catch a chicken Eric's
1: banter is you know it's a work in progress all right we're, we're not all professionals our first time out in the out in the ring I'll put marzipan in your pie plate bingo <laughs> <laughs> But thankfully, Eric is very good at using his Viking powers to shoot lasers out of his hands, so he beats Mesmero and the goons, leading him to the second boss of this level, Lorna.
0: Yeah, Lorna is ready to go mano a mano with Eric the Red to defend her newfound murder dad.
1: Advance one more step and I shall have to kill you. I will be truly sorry, but you will be no less dead.
0: God, I love her costume so much. There's this great cover, not for this issue, I think for a couple issues earlier, that just has her standing over the X-Men in it, you know, the, the flowing and the skull pendant thing, and it's like, the devil's daughter, it's great, it's very pulpy and fun. Oh, it's so
1: good, like her outfit, which of course is almost entirely green with little yellow accents— It's this great mix of, like, flowy around the neckline and sort of armored around the girdle area with these elaborate kind of filigreed bootstraps and bracers and that rad tiara thing. Like, she looks very regal. She really does look like the mistress of magnetism, and it's awesome
0: it's a pity it's a little too evil to stick around as her like classic go-to costume but i do i think my favorite lorna costume is the one that comes after the like purpley one with the weird shoulder bit things that magic kind of stole later oh is that the one that she's wearing when malice takes her over for a while yeah yeah it's it's the one that she has when she's sort of yeah when no actually it's the one she's wearing when she's controlled by the other eric the red
1: Oh, right, when the Eric the Red identity is taken over by Devon Shikari, the Shi'ar spymaster guy, did yeah. we ever get an explanation of why some Shi'ar dude just decided to dress as a bondage viking that himself was a disguise for a random unrelated X-Man?
0: No clue, and later, I don't remember if it's him or if it's another Eric the Red fights Adam X the Extreme and Genesis Vell, the uh, most unfortunate Captain Marvel, the team <laughs> yep. that everyone wanted to see in the 90s. But... Oh,
1: man. You know, I'll forever love that story, though, because Fabian Nicieza finally got to kind of sort of finish his Adam X origin story.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Not as much as he did in the recent X-Men Legends issues, but, but still. Well, anyway, point being, these are two very stylish individuals fighting, but they're too stylish to hate each other, especially when Eric points out, nah, dude, I'm not here to, like, kill your dad. I'm here to team up with your dad.
0: And hit on you for some
1: reason. Yeah, he calls her a beauteous lady. Like, between that and the chicken thing, like, maybe a couple more revisions for your dialogue, Eric.
0: Yeah, he's, he's, uh, that's why improv is important for villains and wannabe villains. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But Lorna trusts him. She doesn't sense the same evil vibrations coming from him that she sensed coming from Magneto. I assume that's a magnetic power along with all the other magnetic powers. Magnetism! Magnetism. (laughs) (laughs) evil (laughs) vibrations. Yup. Love
0: it. Love it.
1: Ah, <gasps> uh, so things are going okay in Evil HQ. Back in Good HQ, the X Men get a call from Cyclops, telling them that it is time
0: for Operation Twilight. Hmm. Okay. Yup. Okay. So later on, there's a uh, there's a bit where the Academy X kids are using uh, they're using the Danger Room to put themselves in old, you know, X Men stories. Like Fall of Mutants, which just got me thinking, was Professor X naming these adventures when they happened? Like, after Gene and Scott were kidnapped by Strife and fed baby food, he was like, Hmm, I think I'll call this one Executioner's Song when I write about it in my murder diary. I love this plan. You know, Book Two, Executioner's Song. Book Three, The Phalanx
1: Covenant. I mean, To be fair, most of those crossovers have pretty awesome names. I think Xavier could have been a wannabe novelist.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, God, Operation Twilight.
1: I mean, to be fair, Eric the Red's outfit is kind of sparkly, so maybe that's related. Maybe they were going to play baseball in the dark next.
0: So, we know the X-Men have a person in the evil base... And we know Eric the Red just showed up. think they might be going somewhere with this. They might indeed. Uh, although I suppose it could be Iceman and not Cyclops.
1: Iceman also got recu- recused from this mission because he had a crush on Lorna. But, uh, yeah. It's Cyclops. The X-Men sneak in, they meet up with Eric the Red, Gene gives him a big hug, and this is Cyclops. This muscular, flesh-bearing bondage viking is Scott Slim Summers, the most awkward X-Man, and I love this fact.
0: It's great. I love that the force beams that that he was shooting out of his fingers were just redirected optic blasts. The fact that there's like a tube that goes throughout the whole uniform that just comes out the fingers from his eyes, like it, it's amazing. That's so fun. Why why doesn't he do that with all his costumes? He could be shooting lasers out of anywhere. It would be great. I oh, could have knee rockets
1: like Boba Fett, except knee optic blasts. I mean, I do have to kind of wonder about the mechanics of this. You know, is I don't think ruby quartz is really a flexible material. So is it is it hinged?
0: Oh, yeah, he's kind of just walking, like, robot style. Oh,
1: it's like Trevor Fitzroy's weird crystal armor from the early 90s. I gotta also have to wonder who designed this costume. I mean, we do know that Jean Grey designed the X-Men's most recent costumes. We do know that she has a crush on Cyclops. I think at this point they're actually canonically together, so maybe she just wanted to peacock her man.
0: Yeah, Jean knows what she wants, and it's the Eric the Red costume. Oh, you know she has Cyclops break that out for special nights. Well,
1: no time for sexy times at the moment, because Mesmero and his orange-clad dudes are coming after Eric and the X-Men, so they set a trap for them, and they mention that they're gonna channel a thousand volts through the floor, and later on when it accidentally hits Iceman, they mention that he almost
0: died. Are are they just trying to kill all these people?
1: Are the X-Men allowed to do that?
0: I don't know how steady the no kill rule has been up to this point but yeah they seem like they might be uh might be getting into some uncomfortable territory murder wise here but it's fine everyone's fine it's fine
1: Oh man, without Professor X to guide them, things go south pretty quickly. Uh, But yes, Iceman does show up. He's got some important news. Unfortunately, he triggers the trap, which knocks him mostly out, and allows Mesmero and his goons to show up and confront the X-Men, and there's a
0: great big fight. Okay, so this is one of my all-time favorite Silver Age Jean Grey moments, her telepathic duel with Mesmero. uh, I wish this had been one of the Neil Adams-drawn issues just because his art is so gorgeous but Jean goes brain to brain with Mesmero and she pretty handily kicks his ass
1: And I love the way it is drawn, even though I agree Adams would have been the best choice. Like they're both just sitting there kind of uh, half facing each other and half facing the audience like they're characters in a fighting game. And these amazing like almost wizard poses as they shoot their telepathic blasts at each other. And it is so cool.
0: Yeah, they are fighting on the psychic realm. There's lots of circles and swirls and stuff, you know, like brains have. Like brains have.
1: Oh, it's it's great. It is genuinely a lot of fun. Uh, even if Mesmero talks a lot about shooting beams of mutant energy, and I don't really know what
0: that means. Maybe Doctor Strange will explain that later as well. So he tells Gene that even if she defeats him on, you know, the psychic plane, his men will stop her. And she's like, you know, there are other X-Men, right? You know, it's not just me, right? There are at least three other dudes out there. <laughs> yep.
1: And in fact, when Lorna shows up to finish the X-Men off on Magneto's orders, we were reminded, oh, there's another dude on top of that, because Iceman, having recovered, shows up to stop her, and he's like, Lorna, okay, I know that Magneto is your dad from what you can tell, and therefore you have to kill if he tells you to kill, but look at these newspapers I found and this interview I conducted with your parents, turns out... He's totally not your dad. Yes, you were adopted, but you were adopted by your aunt and her husband after your parents died. Magneto had nothing to do with that. You don't have to kill unless you specifically want to kill.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the the crux of this is Lorna being totally okay with murder if it's a guy she's never met before in her life. I just... It's okay. You don't have to kill if you don't want to, Lorna. You don't need to not be related to a guy. (laughs) But yeah, this gets retconned back and forth kind of a lot later. Uh, This isn't even the real Magneto. This is a robot that was built by Factor 3.
1: Exactly, yeah. And I think it's in Chuck Austin's run when it'll be retconned that, no, 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 Lorna really is Magneto's daughter. And then Peter David will further retcon that in X-Factor by saying, yes, but only by half, because Lorna's dead mom before she was dead was cheating on Lorna's dad with Magneto. And that was what caused her parents to have an argument while they were flying a plane, which upset baby Lorna, who accidentally magnetically borked the plane. It, It just gets so much more melodramatic.
0: I feel like the X-Men is low-key a PSA about not flying an airplane with your children on it while you're having an argument with your spouse. (laughs) That's a really good point. Granted, it only led to bad things happening twice. I I, I mean, I don't know if Christopher uh, Summers and Anne, no last name even at this point, uh, were having an argument when they got attacked by the Shi'ar. But maybe just don't go flying with your kids.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like being a helicopter pilot in Resident Evil. Like, it's just not going to go well. Maybe, maybe just, maybe just skip that situation.
0: So, Lorna turns on Mesmero slash Magneto slash Factor Three's army of faceless goons. Hide, handily takes care of all of them, and uh, Magneto does what he did back in the day, which was blow up his base. Yep,
1: he blows it up, and the X Men escape, and he also escapes. And now Lorna's hanging out with the X Men. Which, after a few issues, will take us to X-Men number 60 in the shadow of Sauron from September 1969. And oh, this creative team. This is written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Neil Adams, inked by Tom Palmer, and lettered by Sam Rosen. And this is one of my favorite comics— I realized that I've actually covered this issue as a guest host on two separate other podcasts, but we've never talked about it on Explain the X-Men, and I'm so excited that we get to
0: right now, Max. Well, normally I don't recommend actually reading Silver Age X-Men past a certain point, but the Neil Adams-Roy Thomas run is a lot of fun, and it's so gorgeous. And especially this issue, which is basically just Sauron explaining his whole deal. It's great.
1: It's phenomenal. And, yeah, like, a lot of those old Silver Age comics can really feel very dated. And and some of that's the art, and some of that's the writing. And this feels dated, but in a very different way. This feels, for lack of a better term, gothic. Not, Mm -hmm. like, in the Hot Topic way, but in more of the traditional literary way. Like, everything is just very emotional and very serious
0: and very dramatic. Like, in a way you can totally take seriously. I mean, that opening narration, just chef's kiss what is the sound of evil listen
1: do you hear it in that harsh electrical crackle in the ominous hum of hidden generators listen is it there in the morbid maniacal laughter which echoes through dark manhattan corridors listen do you hear it now and will the mutant X-Men hear it also? Will they know it for what it is in time?
0: Man, this is so great.
1: Oh, and the art that accompanies that. There's this cackling, shadowy man gripping these two electrical terminals next to the head of this unconscious guy as energy just corusates around all of them and everything is all shadowy and detailed and at these, like, really dramatic... I would say camera angles, but it's a comic, but the equivalent, like, it's, it's like the
0: best old horror movie you've seen, but in comic form. And you buy into it, that's the thing, it's like, it's really ridiculous, it's completely overwrought, but you're emotionally invested, you get into this. Oh, yeah, right there
1: with page one. Like, Jay and I have talked a lot about how Vincent Price, one of his greatest skills, was making ridiculous stuff seem totally plausible and, like, allowing the viewer of his movies to just buy into it immediately and suspend their disbelief totally. And I feel like in combination, Roy Thomas and Neil
0: Adams absolutely have that skill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, something just to keep in mind, previously on the X-Men... Uh, Larry Tresk tried to avenge his dad and kill the X-Men with Sentinels, uh, kidnapping the about 12 mutants that were kicking around back, you know, in the Silver Age when, you know, mutants were kind of rare. Not really a big thing. Except for the Changeling, which makes me
1: wonder if the dead Xavier having really been the Changeling, if that retcon was already planned at this point.
0: So, this... Goes bad for him pretty much immediately. Turns out the amulet that his dad told him he always had to wear was a mutant blocking amulet because you know he was a mutant. So Sentinels kind of turned on him, and then Cyclops had to, as you know, has been discussed, fight the Sun.
1: Mm-hmm. Still, one of the best ways to defeat Sentinels. Although from what I understand, they fight the Avengers on the way there. I
0: don't know. I haven't read that stuff. Seriously, Rachel Summers should have given it a shot. It couldn't have hurt, right? Worth a try.
1: So, as this giant storyline wraps up, that's where this issue begins, aside from that wonderful first page with the wonderful narration, and the X-Men are just flying away in their X-Jet, trying to figure out what to do next. They're still with Lorna, who at this point decides she would like to join the X-Men, and does, and they're with Alex Summers— Because at the beginning of this story, Scott's heretofore unmentioned brother showed up and promptly got taken over by an Egyptology professor that turned into a giant pharaoh supervillain guy.
0: See, this is the problem with higher education. You go to college, immediately supervillains.
1: Right? And then probably you don't even use your degree when you find your permanent career so Alex is in bad shape uh, he has been through so much shit over the last few issues and he is severely injured so the X-Men's priority is to make sure that he gets some treatment
0: luckily they have Professor X's old friend Carl Lykos to come to the rescue like Lycos? Ly- Lycos
1: wasn't that a search engine back in the early 90s I'm, yeah
0: yeah yeah I'm, I believe it was probably named after this guy Such an out-of-the-frying-pan-into-the-fire situation. Alex just got done being a snack for the living monolith, and they hand him right over to Sauron. Oh, it's great. And yeah,
1: initially, this guy just seems like a normal doctor. And by initially, I mean before he starts talking or thinking or having facial expressions because Neil Adams draws him as so immediately lowercase s sinister. Something about those, like, feathery, floofy eyebrows is just kind of terrifying. I don't know what it is.
0: Well, he's treating a patient who, despite, you know, going through recovery, is still feeling weak and this is like, it sounds like you might need more iron there's there's serious vampire vibes here which given how his whole deal works i'm not sure iron would help in this particular instance but you know it, it couldn't hurt anyway
1: uh kind of like trying to convince sentinels to fight the sun but uh yes this is carl lykos and apparently he had worked with Professor Xavier before in something called Project Mutants that we never really find anything out about, but the X-Men trust him. And that's especially important because the X-Men are outlaws at this point. The world, the media, politicians are starting to really turn against mutants in a way they haven't done before. So again, this era is where some kind of important X-Men stuff, not that it's established for the first time, that was earlier, but it starts to be a big deal.
0: yeah. Before a lot of the, you know, early world that hates and fears them was just mobs showing up every so often. But this sort of has a media component, which I think really works to the point of the X-Men being this scapegoat group.
1: Exactly, and that'll factor into the way this storyline goes as we progress. But for now, Lycos is happy to treat Alex, and there's this great panel of him looking creepy and, again, sinister, with Havoc's distorted reflection in Lycos's Doctor Head mirror thing. Like, every single panel is just dripping menace in basically this entire issue. Adams just knocks it out of the park.
0: So, the X-Men leave Scott's... Injured, defenseless younger brother with this horrifyingly creepy man who needs to be alone with him for an unspecified period of time. They're like, that that's fine. It's fine. I'm sure everything's fine here. Let's go back to the X-Mansion, pop some popcorn, watch some movies, mess around in the danger room.
1: Oh, it's so great. Scott and Gene are walking through the halls of the mansion trying to figure out what their next step is, seeing if they can maybe actually relax. And Scott hears a noise and opens up a door and just falls into a danger room training session. Like, Scott, come on, you freaking live there. Has it been that long that you've been gone on this big adventure with your brother and sentinels and stuff? Maybe,
0: maybe a label, just, you know, a little sign. Danger. Room. (laughs)
1: you know that is a good point like the door to the danger room just looks like any other door in the
0: mansion but yeah things are going danger tastically in the danger room you know saw blades metal tentacles and what have you i love this scene with gene and lorna it is a pity we do well i mean we're starting to get more now gene and lorna is sort of one of the low-key underrated ex friendships They've got this really good natural chemistry with each other and you get to see it here where they're sort of goofing off in the control room messing with the X-Men down in the danger room.
1: Yeah, I—it's a genuine tragedy that when the Silver Age gets as good as it does in this era, that it only has a few issues left. Like, I think there are six issues of Silver Age X-Men left after this before the book stops being a book and is is just reprints. And that's one of the things I would love to see more of. We do see more of Jean and Lorna's friendship to an extent in John Byrne's X-Men The Hidden Years, which kind of fills in that gap. But that book has a very distinct feel, and the plot goes in some very strange places. And I would have liked to have seen just what would have happened if Gene and Lorna got to be friends, like, in the actual X-Book, in the background of all the adventures that everyone was having.
0: Yeah, we get to see it sometimes. Gene threw Lorna her bachelorette party during the Chuck Austin run, where she hired a bunch of shape-shifting strippers to disguise themselves as their co-workers and then strip for them— Which seems like the sort of thing you should have to talk to the X-Men HR about, but not to be fair, it was also bad, but Scott hired a stripper to dress like Nurse Annie to see if Havoc would respond positively to a stripper disguised as one of his co-workers. That's going to be fun to talk about for you when you hit it.
1: I am genuinely excited to talk about Chuck Austin's run. Like, it is just so bananas. And I know a lot of people just look at it like, oh, it's that terrible X-Men run. I mean, okay, by and large, it's not it's not very good, that's true. But the, there are very good parts, and it is never boring. And that's the most important part
0: of something to cover on the podcast. That is true. There is there's always something going on. The, the parrot werewolves, Romeo and Juliet, but with mech suits— Oh, man. Exploding fake Pope.
1: (laughs) Yup. I think you just named a bunch of our Chuck Austin covering episodes, Max.
0: There's also a really good scene between uh, Lorna and Rachel when Professor X takes uh, a group of X-Men with him to space post-decimation, where Lorna talks to Rachel about how how much he misses Gene and how she feels like they haven't really had space to actually grieve her because of all of the stuff that's been going on and how the two of them can talk if they ever need to, which I feel like kind of sets up a lot of uh, Lorna and Rachel's dynamic and way later, uh, the uh, uh, X-Factor, Williams' X-Factor run.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And oh, that run was so good. All of those characters had such distinct dynamics with one another.
0: But enough danger room fun. Lycos is about to do some sinister stuff to Alex Summers. He shoes his nurse away. He tells her, he's like, it's late. You should be getting home. And she's like, it's one. And he's like, out, out.
1: And this is where we get... An incredible two-page spread. This is the beginning of Sauron's origin story as it transitions from the present day with him gesticulating and pondering around Alex's unconscious body to how he got into the situation that he's in now— on the left, there are these overlapping irregular panels and also sometimes just white space of Lycos pacing and clutching his head and throwing out his hand and declaiming. Everybody in Neil Adams's art is so dramatic all the time, and not in a comical way, just in, again, that very gothic, overwrought but functional way. And on the right side of the two page spread, there's this big open panelist part of the page of this Antarctic expedition hiking alongside a cliff, and these inset jagged panels of the expedition's camp, the various characters, this panicked event going on, all with that detailed, textured Roy Thomas narration. I wish my origin story was so
0: stylish and also involved dinosaurs so Carl Lykos's dad was a guide through this particular mountain pass, and he was bringing Herr Anderson, a fancy man, and his young daughter through the mountains to... Oh, I'm going to butcher this. Terra del Fuego? That sounds right. Carl emphasizes what a major, major douchebag Herr Anderson was. The only thing he cared about was his little daughter, which maybe don't bring her on a, you know, dangerous mountain pass journey then, but... Because you never know when your daughter will fall into a cave and be attacked by a swarming mass of pterodons. Yeah, yeah, Fly- flying
1: dinosaurs are menacing Tanya, and the party searches for her. it's Carl who finds her, and he fights some pteranodons with a nearby stick. And again, this should be so stupidly silly. And it's not. It's
0: genuinely
1: exciting and dramatic and just
0: straight-up awesome. I mean, it is a brutal scene. Again, like, like you said, it sounds like it should be silly, but this is a, a teenage guy who is desperately trying not to be murdered by flying dinosaurs, and he's just—you can see how desperate he is, and he is just beating dinosaurs to death with a stick—
1: And he is ultimately successful. He's at least able to get himself and Tanya to safety, but he's been torn the hell up by dinosaurs. Herr Anderson, I guess, has one more redeeming quality. He's also a relatively functional doctor, so he's able to keep Carl alive and get him to the point where he can start healing. But Carl
0: isn't quite the same after this. Yeah, it turns out a side effect of being attacked by a... Herd, Flock, Barrel of Tyranodons. Uh, a terror of Tyranodons? A terror of tyrannodons is the ability to drain life force out of things, including a very, uh, it's it's a very sweet dog.
1: Oh yeah, there's this scene of the family dog coming up to Carl and then just sulking away, all emaciated and betrayed looking and upset. And I feel so bad for this dog. Neil Adams can draw anything and make you feel things about it.
0: So, Carl and Tanya grow closer over the years, and he wants to marry her, but unfortunately, Tanya's dad is not a big fan of, you know, his daughter marrying some nerd who doesn't have any money.
1: And who reads Lord of the Rings all the time. I like that that is uh, specifically brought up immediately in
0: this scene. I love that it's described as wasting his time with children's fairy tales. That's such a specific dismissal of Lord of the Rings. Yeah,
1: if, if Harry uh, Anderson was familiar with Lord of the Rings, he would know that you have to be a certain age to be able to make it through the two towers. That book can be a slog at certain points.
0: So Carl decides to prove that he's not just some fantasy reading nerd by going, to, uh, going into med school and becoming the sort of Silver Age scientist who can build machines to help him drain the life force from his patients. Everyone could just build machines back then. It was just a thing you could do. It's true. I, I
1: I wish I were any good at that. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I drew some blueprints in my notebook of how a, a wrist-mounted um, dart launcher might work. In retrospect, I don't think it actually would have worked very well. I think the darts would have just sort of fallen out.
0: Actually, it kind of fall, uh, follows a little bit into the Bronze Age, too. Remember, Emma Frost built the little machine thing that helped uh, Mastermind brainwash uh, Phoenix. I feel like you don't really see Emma Frost in, inventing much these days. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: Although, knowing Emma, probably she just mind-controlled some actual inventor into making it and then took credit.
0: It also probably wasn't great that the phoenix dropped a building on her head. That probably uh, probably made you a little uh, shy of the inventing game after that. Yeah, yeah, most likely.
1: So it turns out the reason Carl is especially excited to get a mutant patient and the reason he was working with Professor X in the first place was that he's convinced that maybe if he can absorb the energy of a mutant, that'll be enough. And these ever-increasing cravings for life energy will start to give him a break or at least stop continually getting worse.
0: So Professor X didn't know about the whole energy vampire thing.
1: Yeah, this is weird, because this is the Silver Age, and I feel like Professor Xavier was not shy about just randomly reading everyone's mind at that point.
0: Yeah, but, uh... The machine, I wouldn't say it specifically goes wrong. It goes... I wouldn't even say poorly, you know? I was gonna say poorly, but it goes weird. It does not cure him of his energy vampire tendencies. It turns him into a pteranodon man my body my face my very soul they
1: are changed transformed filled with a bursting billowing power power for good or power for evil and i choose evil an evil so great So monumental that only one name in all of the annals of literature will contain it. The name of Tolkien's ultimate villain, that dark lord who personified evil, who was truly evil incarnate. The name of
0: Sauron! Plus, kind of convenient, it has Saur in it, like dinosaur, And on, like, Pteranodon. This works on so many levels.
1: And it's so good. I love this. I love that Carl's like, okay, I have to uh, process this verbally as this strange experience is happening to me. Let's see. A lot of power going on. I seem to be a dinosaur. I could use this in any direction
0: I want. You know what? Let's be evil. That sounds way better. Also, how much do you love the fact that his origin story is basically, it's just a vampire thing, but with dinosaurs instead of bats.
1: Right. And this was this was deliberate. I mean, there have been interviews where it's very clear the initial idea was that the creators wanted to do a vampire character. You couldn't do a vampire character because of the comics code at the time. You couldn't do, like, certain supernatural entities, and vampires
0: were very much on the no-no list. Ergo, I feel like you get some fun and or freaky stuff from having to work within the bounds of that sort of, like, I know people make fun. I personally like it. Morbius's weird hand tentacle things he had in the Spider-Man thing, because in the Spider-Man animated show, because they couldn't show him biting people and drinking their blood. So instead he had suckers come out of his hands and absorb life force. I think that's arguably creepier than just drinking someone's blood, but... No, I,
1: I think I agree. Like, it's also unexpected. I think we've, we've sort of gotten inured to the traditional Hollywood movie monsters, you know, the ones based on those old gothic novels and such. And so doing
0: something weird with it, that catches you off guard a little. It's fun. So the X-Men are watching TV together, as is their wont, and uh, they see a newscast about a, a scary flying monster thief that's, you know, probably a mutant, right? it's not like every other person in the Silver Age could just build a flying suit in their spare time. (laughs) Right.
1: But this is sort of indicative of the media's and politicians and the public's increasing assumption that if somebody's doing bad stuff in a weird way, it's probably one of those mutants who are a menace. Like, the whole anti-mutant sentiment thing is getting played up more and more in a way that I think is pretty organic.
0: Yeah. So Angel's really upset by this. Uh, Angel gets, like, big mad.
1: Everybody forgets that uh, he's very much the hothead of the Silver Age X-Men. Like, everyone's used to him being Archangel these days, or recovering from being Archangel. But at the time, that was his deal. He was arrogant. He would get—he would just fly off the handle a fair bit of the time. He was this very emotional character, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. To the point where he puts on an outfit that represents that aspect of himself.
0: Yeah, they put his old Avenging Angel outfit on from when he was a solo superhero, which I can't blame him for not wanting the outfit that Gene designed for him. I don't remember when exactly this happens, but there's a point where Magneto puts him in this costume designed to drain his mutant energy. And then after that adventure is over, he keeps wearing the costume just because it's better than the one Gene made for him, the like weird suspenders deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, the
1: costumes that Jean designs for the X-Men, by and large, they're pretty good, but Angels is really not. Like, the yellow and the blue and the red seemingly randomly placed, and those suspenders, and oh, it is delightfully terrible.
0: I feel like you can tell what Jean's feelings were on each of the X-Men by how good their outfits were at that time. <laughs> right. And so Angel does indeed track down
1: Sauron, confronting him in the sky, and immediately becoming hypnotized by him, which is the cliffhanger on which the issue ends. But, listeners, I would urge you, check this out. It's on Marvel Unlimited. It's been reprinted a million times. It's just—it's genuinely good. Like, if the whole Silver Age was like this, then I would want to live there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this run is sadly way too short. It's— Again, I can't really recommend a lot of the Silver Age X-Men, but as soon as, as soon as you get into the Neil Adams stuff, it's just, it's bizarre, and it's beautiful, and it's fun weird instead of boring weird. Aw, oh,
1: very much so, Yeah. So there we go. Three issues from Silver Age X-Men, a a, a sampler of an era that probably lasted longer than it needed to and also shorter than I wish it had by the end. Uh, I, I really enjoy talking about this stuff. I really enjoyed getting a chance to revisit the 60s. Yeah,
0: yeah, there's there are some gems buried under there. Like there's some stuff that's well worth looking into. Speaking of gems. Hey, it's our listeners and they've got questions. So, Random Director's Cutbot asks on Twitter if the X Men cartoon had debuted in 1966 instead of 1992, what storylines would the pro- would the producers have adapted?
1: Oh man, uh, so I feel like this could turn into a "What are our favorite Silver Age stories?" Uh, question, but no, let, let's focus on ones that would make good good television. I feel like to start, it is a law that every animated x-men series has to have the juggernaut story the one where we learn his origin story as he's trying to break into the mansion and uh when most shows do this it's just that silver age story anyway so i feel like that's a natural right there that's a good second story or thereabouts beyond that i'm starting to think about like uh sort of the big stories the multi-part stories that could end seasons which of course begs the question well what would our seasons have been
0: well obviously factor three that was one of the only continuing plots that the X-Men had, so.
1: Oh, yeah. That would be a really good sort of backburner plot, like, leading up to maybe a, a Season 2 finale? I feel like Season 1's your Stanley Jack Kirby. That's such a distinctive era right there.
0: I guess kind of related to that, although not exactly, because, you know, Blob and Eunice the Untouchable were part of Factor 3, but I do really love the story where— They disguise themselves as X-Men to frame the X-Men for doing crimes, and I feel like that would be a really good one-shot episode of a 60s-style X-Men TV show. Oh, that totally would be. Yeah, see,
1: that's the downside of having an official X-Men uniform is that anybody can wear it, and people still pretty much look the same. I love that bit. If we wanted a Season 3 finale, I mean, some of the stuff we were just talking about, maybe not the Sauron part as much as I love it, but the story leading up to it with Larry Trask and all the Sentinels and, like, every mutant we've seen so far all getting captured, that would be a really fun way, really, maybe even to end the series. I don't. Th- I love Sauron. I don't think we need him. I really don't think we need this Xenox alien invasion stuff Ooh. at the end or the random Hulk issue that ends the Silver Age run. Like, just end it there. Christopher Walsh asks on Twitter... Are there any Silver Age writers or artists who didn't do X-Men, but who you wish had? You think any DC writers or artists at the time would have done a good job? And Max, I will absolutely defer to you on this one, because you know the DC Silver Age way better than I do.
0: Okay, I'm afraid that this might make me just, you know, an incredibly basic person. Bob Haney and Nick Carty, the classic Teen Titans guys. For all of the, like, I I, I love... Obviously, you know, the Kirby, I love Kirby and Lee as creators. They do a lot of great stuff. I feel like the early X-Men stuff is not exactly their A work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of that is the X-Men don't really feel like teenagers in the early stories. I, I mean, they go to a coffee shop and that's basically it. Bob Haney writes like a 40 year old man trying to write teenagers But they do also read as teenagers. Plus, he's got some real off-the-wall stuff. I feel like you would have a lot of very fun early X-Men stories. And, of course, Nick Cardi is just—he draws teenagers that actually look like teenagers, which is something you don't see a lot in comics ever, so. Right. And I don't think you ever see that in Silver Age X-Men. Like, of all the X-Men
1: artists, the characters all look, I think, older than they're supposed to be. Yeah, I I would love to see something like that, because, I mean, something that DC did better than Marvel is Silver Age goofiness, and that's not a bad thing. That's a really fun thing sometimes.
0: Kate, Renee Montoya Enjoyer, asks on Twitter, what's the most baffling use of magnetism the Silver Age ever saw? Oh,
1: boy, that's a a big question right there, because magnetism could do, like, anything. If I had to pick one... I think I'm going to have to go for something that happens in X-Men number 18, where Magneto hypnotizes Angel's parents to make them go to bed so they can stop being a pain in his ass by using his ability of magnetic attraction. Like, that was the part, I think, where the comic was just like, you know what, Magnetism can do anything, doesn't even matter. We just want Magneto to, like, dominate every scene he's in so he can just do anything.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think you, you, you can't really top that. Later, later stuff has Magneto doing mind control stuff by like, oh, I can limit the iron in your blood or whatever to make you do whatever. But I like back when it was just he had a magnetic personality and therefore could control people's minds. It's fun. Yup.
1: Aw, so good. There was also that time in the first issue of X-Men, of course, where he used magnetized dust particles in the air to write a note telling the army to surrender and then signed it in cursive. I will never get sick of that. I kind of wish, though, he'd signed it, like, love, Magneto, the way you sometimes accidentally say, okay, love you, bye, when you're talking to, you know, a a telemarketer or something at the end, and then just erased love and insisted it never happened.
0: I love that that gets a little bit of a callback in the, like, post-AVX thing where Cyclops is trapped in prison and Magneto is writing him little notes on the floor of his prison cell with magnetic fillings <laughs> like it's oh, so good but the, the 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 extra fancy on the m signature it's great
1: you know magneto has always had a flair for the dramatic and that extends to his calligraphy to his penmanship
0: Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is fully listener-supported, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts. Today, the mic goes to Sauron.
1: Such raw Saurian power awakens within me. I am transformed into a being far greater than the not-particularly-mild-mannered physician that once I was. And with such strength... Such evil, evil strength must come a fitting Nom de Pteranodon. And I shall take that name from the ultimate evil in all of mythology, that figure of darkness and wicked oppression, of black flame and bloodied maw, Brian Stratton. But sometimes... This raw hypno-terror that fills my veins flows differently, and I don't feel like a Brian. And so shall I choose yet another appellation for my victims to whisper in fear as I drain the life energy from their feeble forms. That of the monster under the bed of every child. The myth spoken of in shadow and mistrust across the long nights of the world. The primal horror at the heart of Ennui. Eubini! And now I, Brian, or Eubini, or whichever, Shall spread my leathern wings and hunt what mutant prey my dino eyes espy. Seems a little chilly out there to fly around in, though. Has anyone seen my jorts? And meanwhile, Max, thank you so much for filling in for Jay for guesting on the show. This has been a blast talking Silver Age X-Men with you.
0: Yeah, I had a ton of fun. So if people would
1: like to hear more of your opinions on X-Men, Silver Age and Otherwise, and see your comics and such, where can they find you online?
0: Uh well, I'm on Well, I'm on Tumblr at Waiting for the T. That's my uh Tumblr thing. Short for waiting for the trade. You can't always get the uh you can't always get the things you want. Or I'm on Twitter at a Mad Cartoonist. A Twitter handle I made when AVX was coming out and I had some Strong feelings about that uh, I also do a couple of podcasts with my wife Tina uh, Also a former guest host uh, We do Welcome to the Uncharted Territories Which is a podcast about Farscape Which is basically Wizard of Oz But sci-fi with s aliens And uh, we do Welcome to Hallowell Manor Which is a podcast about uh, Charmed Old school Charmed Uh, for those of you who are fans of kind of schlocky 90s genre TV.
1: And listeners, uh, Max and Tina do really, really fun television podcasting. I remember guesting on uh, Welcome to Storybrooke, their Once Upon a Time podcast many years ago. Ton of fun. They have a great dynamic. I recommend you check their stuff out. So thanks again, Max. This was a blast.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged the theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moontalk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts,
1: Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
0: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynne. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help
1: us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Also, check out the Equality link up there as well and donate to Equality Florida. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. In two weeks, Jay will be back at the microphone. And the Mutant Liberation Front takes a trip to Muir Island.